Church History Matters, episode 48. Brothers and sisters, and welcome to another episode of Church History Matters. I am Joseph Knowles, and in case you forgot, I am Ruben Rosales. And we're bringing you this time a, another installment of our biographical series, which we have dubbed Heroes and Heretics. So we'll get to that in short order here. But in the meantime, we do not have this week in church history. <laughs> yep. Because I kind of Ran out of time, and I've got some other events where I was a little slightly many, uncertain. Yes, many events. Many you events. Published a second issue of a magazine. Ah. been very very busy. So yeah, so just ran out of time. But in uh, in place of that, we do have a brief book recommendation for you. So this is actually a, a book that was uh, sent to us. Uh, we were blessed to be able to get a review copy directly from the publisher. So so that was nice. And the book is We Were a Peculiar People Once, Confessions of an Old Time Baptist by David Lyle Jeffrey. Doctor. Dr. Jeff- yes, Dr. David Lyle Jeffrey. He is a distinguished professor of literature and humanities at Baylor University. He earned his PhD from Princeton University, and he's also the author or editor of many books, including the King James Bible and the World It Made. But this book in particular, which just came out this past uh, summer, so summer 2023, if you're listening at some distant point in the future. And it is essentially his uh, memoir of his life growing up in what he dubs the right. uh, old time Scottish Baptist tradition. Yeah, that's, that was a new one to me. At least the um, the fact that that existed as a tradition. As I read the book, which I thoroughly enjoyed, and it is... Largely biographical, but I would say at sometimes also um, devotional and encouraging in in some areas. It was a lot of it was very familiar to me from growing up in the independent fundamental Baptist of America or the United States world. Yeah. So he's got just for instance some of the chapter titles here: Outhouse Theology. That was an interesting chapter, but also chapters on the Wednesday night prayer meeting which is a lost tradition in a lot of churches. Um, the missionary conference. So if you've ever experienced a missionary conference in a uh, small Baptist church, whether it be Southern Baptist or independent, a lot of that will feel very familiar. But he's not just telling his life story, although he does that. There are, there are also chapters on sin, salvation, Grace, chapter 11, is Grave Matters, which is a little bit of a uh, play on words there where he's talking about, yes, it is serious matters, but he's also actually talking about end-of-life matters. It's very biographical, very, uh, it's it's essentially a memoir. Mm-hmm. So if, I mean, if you'd like to learn a little bit about specific region of church history, this is a very good book to go to for that because it's, it's, it doesn't read as a historical book. Right, yeah. But you do, yeah. You pick up uh, bits and pieces along the way, and I think you, maybe more than anything, you get a you get a, a good feel for what it was like to grow up the way that he did. And uh, like I said, sin, salvation, grace, and 
he um the the Scottish Baptist tradition of Canada was largely um and I, I suppose probably still is largely Calvinist, which in my circles was uh, a bit of a bad word. Um <laughs> so that part of it was very different, but a lot of the rest of it just uh uh was very was very familiar and enjoyable to read. So if you're in the market for and it's not it's not very long either. I think it, it's less than two hundred pages. Oh, is that like a an hour long read for you? Not quite. <laughs> Counting the appendix on the necessity of biblical language, it comes in in 166 pages, depending on how fast you read. I'm a slow reader. Yeah, even for a slow reader, it, it, it's not a, a big, chunky book, you know. But that's available from Baylor University. Um, their imprint there is 1845 books. So we don't necessarily, I don't have anything to say about any other books that they might publish because right. I don't know what they are. But right. this one is good, and I think we can we can give it our recommendation. So there you go. A little bit of church history reading for you on a more... Some regional church history. Yeah, regional church history on a, a personal, individual-type front. We uh, unfortunately missed... Uh, we're a little late getting this one out, yeah. but if we had been about six weeks earlier, we probably would have been able to get this out and had a really cool Today in Church History-ish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because we're going to be talking about someone who's very well known, very well respected in on all on all fronts, I think, mm-hmm. uh, for the most part. But uh, that is Clive Staples Lewis. Yes, indeed. So a couple dates would have been would have been great if we could have got got it done because his birthday is twenty uh, ninth November twenty ninth, and the date of his death is November twenty second. 1963. Yes. The day Lincoln, not Lincoln. Kennedy, Kennedy, the other one. Yes. Yeah, Uh, yeah, so that's how, I mean, I I can remember his his birthday because it's the same day as my wife's birthday, not 1898. (laughs) Um, Obviously, she was (laughs) much more recently than that. Yeah, and the date of his death, the same day that uh, President Kennedy was shot. And also, I learned this recently, it was also the day that Aldous Huxley died. Oh. So the author, yeah, and a contemporary of Lewis, uh, obviously writing from a very different perspective, the exact opposite perspective, most well known probably for Brave New World and things yeah. like that. But oh, he also died November 22nd, 1963. But enough about that. We're uh, back to C.S. Lewis. And hopefully, um, well, two things. Hopefully, a lot of his biographical information is familiar to people. Yeah, hopefully. But also hopefully... We were able to dig up at least a couple of tidbits that might be less familiar to people. There were some things that, as I looked over, I was like, oh, yes, I remember reading about that. But they're not always top of mind as far as um, as far as his bio- biography goes. I think it's also in- uh, some necessary to point out uh, we're, we're having an episode called uh, Heroes and Heretics. Uh, there's a couple of distinctions that need to be made and pointed out. Um, the first is what is a heretic and how do we classify mm-hmm. a heretic? And how would you say we would classify a heretic? Yeah, I mean, I think what we've talked about before is anyone who is explicitly denying or by necessary implication denying core doctrines of the Christian faith. So we're talking about big ticket items like the Apostles' Creed type doctrines, denying mm-hmm. the Trinity, denying the divinity of Christ, denying the virgin birth, those kinds of things. Right. So that would put, for us, again, not trying to be unkind to anybody, but we would say, well, we'd just say Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are not Christians They're not Christians, all. yeah. Somebody who claims to be, well, they do in some sense. So that's, sense, that's, that's the sticking, is 
we we would distinguish between those who are heretics is those who are making a claim to being orthodox christian right and if they are making a claim and yet deny the tenets of the faith then they are and, and they're in it yes so, even after being rebuked yeah yeah so if you walk into the episcopal church with the rainbow flag out front and they're saying well god's pronouns are mm. all of the pronouns he she it they right okay I'm very comfortable saying that that person is a heretic. Oh, I was going to say they're not even in the faith. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, at least, at least over the doorway right. as you walk in, it right. says the Episcopal Church, which used to be, you know, came out of the Church of England. That's right. Yeah. So that that is something that I hope that we would or we have displayed some measure of control uh, with regards to that word heretic because. Mm-hmm. If a person is, is claiming Christ and is confessing the creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Definition or Chalcedonian Creed, and Athanasian Creed, then we we would say, hey, they're probably in error, but we cannot aff- affirmatively say that they are outside of the kingdom, that they are accursed. And so that's a necessary distinction because... When we look at the church, we wouldn't we wouldn't qualify someone who's outside the church as a heretic. We would just say they're not in the church; they're not a part of the body. Right. And so, the word heretic is for those who are claiming to be in Christ, and yet holding to holding fast, even after rebuke and correction, uh, to false teachings or teachings that deny, as you said, core tenets of the faith. Yeah, that's good, and that's helpful. I mean, like you said, an important distinction. Oh, and additionally, the, the the way we make that distinction as far as those that are Christian, those that are not, is what's, what's the determining factor? How do I know that I'm a Christian? Well, do you believe the gospel? Mm-hmm. You know, who do you believe that God is? Who do you believe that you are? And these are, you know, formulaic to the gospel. Yeah. So that's why the creeds are so important, because if you ignore the creeds, then if you have a gospel, it's probably going to be corrupted or mm-hmm. confused. And so the creeds help us to be able to understand and fully verify that their gospel is in keeping with scriptures. Yes. So what's not on the heretics makes you a heretic. Inerrancy of scripture. That's a tough one, though. It is. That's believing really believing that women can be pastors or right. preachers. Right, yeah. No, no. That doesn't make you a heretic. And I know this is going to, that drives some people mad. Uh, but again, if they are confessing and claiming Christ, um, then we we would just remind everyone that we are not saved by our doctrine. Right. We are not saved by perfect doctrine. We are saved by a perfect Savior. Mm-hmm. So we want to make sure that we are cognizant of that and being careful and judicious in how we throw that word heretic Absolutely. out. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, onward. Yes. Onward and further up further and further, up further and in. Further in. As one might say. Yeah. Some some listeners will get that reference. Um <laughs> So, uh, back to Lewis, born November 29th, 1898, in what is now northern, in Belfast. So, yeah. now that's Northern Ireland. Then, it was just Ireland. Ireland. It's just plain Ireland, which was part of the United Kingdom. So, they were not independent. Um, he was baptized in the Church of Ireland by his maternal grandfather in January of the following year. And as you introduced him, his full name, uh, Clive Staples Lewis. As far as family goes, he had one older brother, Warren, who was born in 1895. And uh, both brothers were influenced by the works of Beatrix Potter, 
was very popular at the time. And they actually created a fantasy world that was filled with talking animals. So there's all these stories, and some of them have been collected. The name of the world is Boxen, B-O-X-E-N. Huh. Um, so you can, I mean, you can look that up and you can see some, some of the things that C.S. Lewis and his brother wrote as literal children. But to most of, well, to family and friends and throughout the rest of his entire life, really, uh, he was not lo- known as Clive. Right. He was known as Jack. Which I don't understand. Yeah. Well, here's how it came about. When he was, <laughs> he was about four years old, he had the dog was named Jaxie. Um, 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 was killed by a horrible. Yeah. So after the dog was killed by the car, he he insisted on being called Jaxie for a for a long time after the dog died, and eventually mm. they convinced him to go by Jack. Right. So once they convinced him to go by Jack, he's like, "All right, we will stick with that." Jack is an improvement over Jaxie, right. <laughs> who was your dog. We named the dog you, or we named the dog Jaxie. Right. <laughs> uh, a little bit more about his family. His father was a, a solicitor for us Americans. That's a lawyer. Um, oh, really? Yes. I thought it was those guys that go knocking door to door. Like, you know, Billy yeah, Graham yeah, used yeah. to. Solicitors, yeah, yeah. They're the lawyers that do more of the transactional. They do actually mo- most of the client work. And it's the barristers that go and talk in the court, although mm. it's less of a distinction now. But that's neither here nor there. Um, his mother, in what was a little bit unusual for the, the time, graduated from the University of Ireland. So all that to say, he grew up in a well-educated family, and he was literally never at a loss for having any kind of reading material. Um, actually, during that's when they did a lot of their reading and creating of stories was during uh, one of the flu epidemics at the time, not the big one of 1918, but previous one. Um, or no. Yeah, it was. Yeah, there was people who came Spanish back from the flu. War. Yeah, 1914, 1915. Yeah. Um, so this was prior to that. But his, he and his brother would be basically trapped at home inside the house. So that's when they would, you know, like in the Chronicles of Narnia. Very much so. Very much so. So you can you can see kind of a direct line from his childhood to to some of his writing. He early on he was educated by private tutors, and that continued up until just before he turned ten years old um, when his mother died. You know, for various reasons, and again, the way people think about these things has changed a lot over a hundred years. Yeah. So his father at that point had both of the boys go off to boarding schools, which they likely would have done in any event at some right. point in their lives. So the rest of his education continues there. You know, sadly, it was at one of those schools that. He abandoned the teachings of Christianity as a teenager. Uh, he decided he was an atheist. Um, it's also during this time that he, you know, uh, Lewis develops an interest in Norse, Greek, and Irish mythology, including, again, unfortunately, well, I mean that kind of goes hand in hand with Irish mythology, though. Yeah, though, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a lot of ways, absolutely. Although some of the some of the mythology, and we talked about this a little bit um, way back when, when we talked about the. Um, uh, Patrick mm-hmm. uh, Colm Keel and St. Brigid is kind of intermixed with uh, Christian uh, Christian theology in some ways mm-hmm. uh, because Christianity goes back a long ways in Ireland. But so, yeah, so there's some of that syncretism that goes on there, but a lot of it obviously is, is uh, heavily influenced by the occult. So as far as how his early years went along, he is granted entry to University College, University College Oxford and he enrolls there in the summer of 1917, which was probably not, it was a horrible time yeah. to be a young man of college age. And it he was, was the best of times. It was the worst way, of times. Yeah. 
Um, so he wasn't at Oxford for very Different long. author, sorry. Yes, Dickens. Not to confuse yeah, anybody. <laughs> he enters the army. He goes kind of like their uh, truncated version of officer training school. Oh, yeah, officer training. Yeah, yeah. That's right. At the Western Front on November 29th, 1917, his 19th birthday. Wow. Yeah. The next, so the next spring, the Germans make a big offensive push, and uh, he was wounded during that time. In fact, it was not the German, it was an English shell that fell short of its target. So this fre- frequently happened with the artillery, where it's like, if you don't have the trajectory and the wind and all, and all that right, it's going to end up in your own trenches. And that's, in fact, what happened. He was wounded, and two people ni- nearby were, were, were killed during the same uh, incident. So... He recovers. He's assigned to duty back in England and is eventually discharged shortly after the war is over. This might be part of his life story that's unfamiliar to a lot of folks. During the course of his training, so back in 1917, one of his roommates basically, mm-hmm. yeah. by the name of Edward Patty Moore, they kind of entered this agreement that if either of them were killed, then the other would take care of his family. Sadly, Moore was killed in 1918. But Lewis was true to his word. He kept his promise. And, and, and so he got back and brought, he, brought his friends to live with him. Um, and eventually they would all live together with uh, Lewis's brother, Warren. Hmm. The sister actually lived with the Lewises until 1940 when she married. And the mother, whose name was Mrs. Janie Moore, lived with them until the late 1940s when she had to be uh, moved to a nursing home due to her dementia. Um, though throughout her whole life he would introduce her as his mother and he he continued to visit her at the nursing home every day until her death in 1951 house where they live is known as the kilns and it is now 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 c.s lewis which is owned and operated by the c.s lewis foundation there in oxford and i was looking at that just briefly and because i wanted to see what it looked like right um there's like one picture are you serious? Yes. Well, I think part of it is they want to maintain the um, scholarly feel of the place. Mm. So it's number one. It's like it's not open for public tours. You can request uh. a tour, but you have to request it specifically for your group, and they have to approve you. And then uh, on your tour, there's no photography of any kind that's allowed. Not like you can't photograph the pictures. Like you can't take pictures or video of anything. So that's kind of their their so drone. So you got to take a drone. Yeah. Got <laughs> Something it. like that. Got it. But it's it's a place where scholars will come and they'll stay for, you know, months at a time and and uh, at Oxford mm-hmm. while they're studying. So they want to maintain, like, the academic nature of the place where people are coming like, hey, I want to read and study and do this stuff. So What is that called? Um, thing they do. We do sometimes play this little game on Halloween. The, not Halloween. The Reformation Day. What is yeah. Relics. Oh, yeah. The relics, they're they're yeah. treating it a lot like a relic. Yeah, a little bit. There's no magic sauce there. There's nothing. No, no. That's but I think, yeah, just, to, hey, people live here and they're trying to I mean, I, I, like no to go, I like to go visit uh, Jefferson's place. Oh, Monticello. Yes. That place is beautiful. It is fantastic. And just a note, if you do hear my dog in the background and I don't edit them all out, I will try to catch them all. But you might hear that from time to time. So after uh, the Great War is over... Lewis returns to his studies at Oxford, and he really excelled in everything. Uh, Greek and Latin literature, philosophy, ancient history, and English. And this Of course, to, English. Yes, of course, English. 
1925, he became a fellow and tutor in England, England, England College. To hold until 1954. Wow. So 29 years as a fellow at Oxford. Um, there was another professor who made his return to Oxford the same year that Lewis did. And this man, to man, to man, Rollins, professor of Anglo-Saxon with a fellowship at Pembroke College. And he was destined to become a lifelong friend of Lewis's. His name was John Ronald Rule Tolkien. That's yeah, a, I would have shortened that up too. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a name that will be familiar to, you know, many, many listeners, maybe less so to our pastor, but <laughs> sorry, I had to throw you under the bus like that. Yeah. Um, well deserved. Well deserved. <laughs> so it's, remember now, throughout all this time, he, he professes to be an atheist. He rejects Christianity. He had various reasons for doing that. He, Looking back on some of them, it's it very much seems like the uh, Reddit internet atheist yeah. level objections. Yeah, it was not very it wasn't very thoughtful. No, and I think I think that's really truthfully, I mean that's the case for a lot of folks. I mean, we live in the the quote unquote Bible Belt, and so many people are you know it's they treat it as something familiar, mm-hmm. and so they don't give it a second thought. They yeah. just they easily brush things off, and so once they it seems like once he actually took took a minute to think. He was forced to think upon it. Mm-hmm. I think something gear started to turn. Yeah. Uh, so he encounters got. I mean, Tolkien is just one, and there's a group of the group would become known as the Inkling, Inkling, Inkling. Um, uh, Charles Williams, Owen Barfield, Warren Lewis, Lewis, Lewis brother, and one or two others, and various people who would pop in and pop out. But there was a core group. So he was immediately in that university environment, surrounded by uh, other other other. Um, so, which was providential, obviously, um, and, and he writes about his process of conversion, which he said he was basically dragged kicking and screaming. It was not at all like this emotional, he was so happy to finally be a a believer in God again. In fact, so the book that he writes later, Surprised by Joy, is kind of a, a spiritual autobiography in a lot of ways. Um, but a little, just a little uh, excerpt from that. He writes that whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, he felt the steady, unrelentingly desired not to meet. <laughs> that which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, that's um, the university there, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. <laughs> so he writes that it happened in 1929. It may have actually been 1930, according to some biographers. And uh, Lewis himself admitted that he was very bad at remembering dates. Uh, but the important point to note there is that Lewis, at that point, had only rejected atheism. Um, so he said, yes, there right. is a God. Right. I don't know about all this Christianity stuff. Let me figure it out. Right, yeah, he had, con- he, he had said he converted to theism. Right, yes. So it was a multi-step thing for him. But it wouldn't be that much longer. You come to the fall of 1931, and shortly after a late night, late night, late night with Tolkien, myths, and how Jesus Christ is the true myth, that's when this final step in his conversion. Again, in Surprised by Joy, he writes, I know very well when, but not how, the final step was taken. I was driven to Whipsnade one sunny morning. When we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and when we reached the zoo, I did. 
later he would go on to say he hadn't really spent the ride in thought or even experienced any kind of remarkable emotions. So it it happened on the road, but it wasn't road, really like a demand experience. Like he he says, it was more like when a man after a long sleep, still lying motionless in bed, becomes aware that he is now awake. That's so, a very nice way of saying it. Yeah. Yeah. However, a little pushback where I came into some uh, research. One particularly harsh critic mm. took exception with this explanation because mm-hmm. you notice that if someone is telling their testimony, typically mm-hmm. that includes the proclamation of the gospel. Yeah, yeah. I heard the gospel. I acknowledged that I was a sinner and that the only way of salvation was through Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And so he says, this isn't really... This is admit, admitting that Jesus is the Son of God is fine. The yeah. demons do that. Yeah, yeah. You read the Gospel of Mark; it's full of demons saying, mm-hmm. "You are the Son of God. You are the Holy One of God." So, that's one area where I saw hmm, mm. it's not wrong, right? But I'm not. I mean, C.S. Lewis is dead, so there's no way to be like, "Hey, so when you wrote that, what do you mean? Right, just yeah, talk yeah. to me about this. Talk to me about that." We just have to go off of his testimony that he sure. claimed salvation in Christ, right? So his first, well, I didn't put this in the notes, but his first work of fiction that was published, if you don't count the Pilgrim's Regress. So he wrote Pilgrim's Regress, 1933, and that was basically his attempt to describe his own conversion story mm-hmm. in the style of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Um, and I, Actually, I think we have a copy of that. I know we have a copy in the church library because I put my hands on it this past Sunday <laughs> looking for C.S. Lewis materials. But the one that probably... So, yeah, that's more of a biography than straight fiction. His first work of fiction was Out of the Silent Planet, mm. which was published in 1938. The best of the Ransom Trilogy, in my humble oh, okay. opinion. In your humble opinion. All right. I will opinion. allow it with that qualification. <laughs> I think, I think uh, you know, the third one's a very, very, very close second, if not tie. Yes. Know? Well, it's virtually a work of prophecy, as you've probably heard me say before. Yeah. Um, not that... C.S. Lewis's works are inspired. From no, In that not. way, absolutely not. But, well, if you haven't read it, read it and you will understand what I mean. Um, so that takes us close to, so 1938, the next year was the war, the year that World War II broke out, 1939. So it was the year C.S. Lewis had turned 40, he's about to turn 41, and uh, the war breaks out. He volunteers for military service, and they said, <laughs> no thanks. You're old, no thanks. <laughs> um, we can't use you. They did offer him a position writing columns for the Ministry of Information, and he specifically said I, he didn't take it because he didn't want to write lies for the newspapers. <laughs> I mean, that's correct. So he goes back to Oxford, and uh, later on during the war, he's, uh, he is allowed to serve in the Home Guard. Hmm. What is the um, Home Guard? So it's, okay, all the old guys who can't go to war, like if the Germans get here, well, you guys hmm. should probably train and drill in gotcha. case you've got to pick up a gun. And we had a, there were home guards here uh, during the American Civil War. And it's basically the same thing. If you weren't off at war for some reason, could it be a totally legitimate reason, uh, age, sickness, mm-hmm. um, you know, if they are, um, what have you, then you could still serve in the home guard. Um, so Lewis does that. Obviously, the British never had to rely on the home guard to shoot any German invaders. But what's more, much more significant um, in his life during the war years is a series of radio addresses that he gives for the BBC beginning in August 1941 and then on almost all, not quite to the end of the war. Um, they continued on through 1942 and 1944. But the first series of addresses that he gave were under the title 
right or wrong, a clue to the meaning of the universe. And what he's doing here is making an apologetic case for Christianity, mm-hmm. uh, more or less based on the argument from morality. Yeah. And the talks were, they vary between 10 and 15 minutes in length. It's, it's funny. At one point, he was preparing 15-minute talks for a 15-minute slot. And then they switched it on him, and he was he but he was still preparing fifteen minutes worth of material for a ten minute slot. Nice. And then they switched back on him, and he had fifteen minutes of uh, um, ten, 10 minutes. minutes of material for a fifteen minute slot. Um, so it was funny how it kind of flopped back and forth like that. But there were so there was the first one beginning in August forty one, then three more series of programs that he did. And of course, several years after the war was over, um, the radio talks along with some of those things he had to edit out for time. Make it back in, and they're compiled into the book that we now know as Mere Christianity. And if any, I mean, if you've read any of C.S. Lewis's apologetics work, that's most likely where you started. It, yeah. it might be his, aside from the Chronicles of Narnia, I'm, I'm guessing that's probably his best known book. May, it might even be better known than the Chronicles of Narnia. What I don't would know. you say? I think that's that's probably fair. It's right up there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I mean, if you've if you've read it, you can see why because it's because it was originally delivered as radio addresses. It's very conversational. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like you're sitting in the room, just you know, talking these things out. And you can, I mean, you can see why it's why it is it was so popular at the time, and why it has continued to be one of his most well known and best loved books. However, and it's also, <laughs> <laughs> however, yeah. <laughs> It is not without it is not without some issues, and I think you had some of those there that you were mentioning. Oh yeah, several, several. Yeah, which I mean, I would just preface it by saying I first read it in college. I'm trying to remember what class I read it for, but I cannot. It might have been for my political theory, which was a 400 level political science thing. Gross. Oh, it was it was it was fantastic. We read that. We read. No, I mean political science. Oh, was gross. <laughs> Read Dostoevsky, so it's been it's been I I don't I have read it since then you know but reading it in college, I don't I don't think I picked up on a lot of the stuff that I did pick up on when I reread it later right and realized mm, I well that's just wrong this thing I don't think you should probably say it that way because you're going to cause confusion and yeah, things like that but yeah. yeah yeah I think that there were uh, the I've read it. Uh, when I first was became a Christian, mm-hmm. and I was like, "This is this is uh, something I think I want to read." I heard a lot of great mm-hmm. things about it, yeah. And at that time, I don't remember. I remember it was difficult for me to read. I was like, mm-hmm. um, "I'm not sure I'm understanding what he's mm-hmm. saying here." But overall, I remember having a overall good impression of it. Mm-hmm. I thought it was fairly oh, yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. Excepting a few troubling, actually, most of the problems that I find with with Lewis's theology. Are in mere Christianity, mm. and for what it's worth, I think there was even one of these uh, sources that I have here. I had four of them. I'll say the ones that are reputable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll leave the other two <laughs> off, um, but you'll see. One was from the SBTS, uh, Southern Baptist Theological mm-hmm. Seminary, and the other was from Crossway.org. Mm-hmm. Ten things you should know about C.S. Lewis. But in one of them, the one I told you was the more vocal critic of Lewis. He did include the fact that. Actually, he said the only place he could find where Lewis explicitly mentions salvation by faith alone hmm. is in a letter that he had written to to someone where he basically remarks that, 
I did come across, he was explaining the purpose of his radio talks and why they were the way they were. And he said the only thing that he had heard so far was from a Methodist person who said, what about about faith, uh, salvation? And so he said, and that was it. That was the only area in all of Lewis's written stuff that he could find. So I'm like, well, that's kind of problematic. Yeah. (laughs) Kind of. Again, I wish I had more information. Mm-hmm. I wish I could speak to him and say, hey, tell me what you understand of this. Because, as we said at the very beginning, understanding the gospel yeah. is what makes you a Christian. Yes. is faith in the gospel. Yeah. You are saved by Christ. Christ. You are a sinner who has broken God's law and therefore need a Savior. And that only Savior can come through Christ, who is perfect, truly human, truly God, died a death that we deserve, and on the third day uh, rose again conquering death and burying all sin all of our sin in the grave amen so i don't think there's anywhere that we see those words expressly written by lewis i mean i don't i don't see it right. yeah and again i can't i can't make the claim like oh well that just means that means he's not christian well right i mean how many other folks have claimed christianity and yet they've never written those words down? right yeah yeah exactly and also consider that he wasn't a theologian by trade right he studied some theology, and he liked to engage in conversations regarding mm-hmm. apologetics. Yeah, but he wasn't a theologian, right? And so, part of what he said that was problematic is I'm going to I'm going to err on the side of he's he probably doesn't mean that, mm-hmm. and he probably didn't mean in the in the most of the way it looks negative. He probably didn't mean it that way, right? But let's talk about a few of them. All right. Uh, he believed that God was dynamic and not static, like a dance. Hmm. Dynamic like a dance. So I put this in my notes. I don't think that this is, I think it's just a really bad way of saying that God is pure act. Hmm. He's not just immobile and doesn't do anything. He doesn't just exist. Right, right. And so he's pure act. He is immutable, impassable. While he may have said dynamic, which is a word that we would not use. Right. We would say he's yeah. unch. I don't think that's what he meant. Yeah, I think you're right. Based and, off the context. Yeah, and there's just a lack, maybe a lack of uh, theological vocabulary Absolutely. there. And Absolutely. I don't know what the, um, especially if he's working with um, the Church of England's 39 articles, uh, at least off the top of my head, I'm not sure if that's a that's a doctrine that's mentioned in there. I imagine it. I can pull it up. No, well, that, yeah, that's a good idea. I think. It's, <laughs> uh, what is it? The Anglican Confession? 39 articles? The 39 articles. So man, that could be it. That could yeah. be it. But um, like we'll you say, he's not. He is his specialty is not theology. Um, so some, you know, someone whose specialty was theology. Yeah. You'd judge, you know, a little more strictly right. in terms of the words that they choose to express doctrines like that. Yeah. Uh, he believed that God was sovereign, and that man had a free will. Now, again, this doesn't. This isn't outside the bounds of orthodoxy. This is something that our confession would actually uh, align with. Mm-hmm. Is chapter 9 of the London Baptist Confession talks about the free will of man and the sovereignty of God. Uh, chapter 9, paragraph 1. God hath endued the will of man with that natural liberty and power of acting upon choice, that it is neither forced nor by any necessity of nature determined to do good or evil. So that was the initial state of man. Mm-hmm. Uh, man essency had freedom and power to will and to do that which was good and well-pleasing to God, but yet was unstable, 
so that he might fall from it. Paragraph 3. Man by his fall into a state of sin hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. So it's very clear um, our confession is making a distinction here, saying, yes, you have a free will. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. You make the decisions. No one's forcing you. No one is controlling you like a puppet. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. As some are up, you know, would like to say about Calvinist. Mm -hmm. That's not what's happening. We confess that man has free agency. However, he is not, does not have libertarian free will. Right. He is not free from God. He is tainted by sin. Mm -hmm. And that sin always, always affects how he uses that free will. Yep. Not a terribly big issue there. Mm Mm-hmm. Necessarily. Probably makes some folks be a little upset. Yeah. Uh, He did not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. He rejected the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement, uh, substitutionary penal atonement, and he set forth an odd view of the resurrection of the body. Those are probably some of the three, those are the three biggest probably issues most folks would have with his beliefs. Right. I mean, especially inerrancy of Scripture. If the doctor is right, then you should hold to it, regardless of how difficult it is. Sure. That would have been a difficult one for a lot of people to, for a variety of reasons. Again, in that time, like, oh, all Orthodox Christians held to a, you know, rock solid view of the inerrancy of Scripture. Right. And it was just these few fringe, fringe liberal types out on the periphery who denied it. Like, right. uh, it's almost the exact opposite. Right. Yeah. So I think that's, again, that doesn't put you that doesn't put you in the heretic column. Another troubling quote from this one concerning inerrancy of scripture or his writings on reflections on the Psalms. Hmm. Have you read that? Did you read that one? Look I it. know of it. I have not read it. This one kind of made me sad. Hmm. Uh, but of course, the fatal confusion between being in the right and being righteous soon falls upon them. The psalmist he's speaking of. There's also in many of the Psalms a still more fatal confusion that between the desire for justice and the desire for revenge. Even more devilish than Psalm 109, in one verse is the otherwise beautiful Psalm 137. On Psalm 23, verse 5, he says, This may not be so diabolical as the passages I have quoted above, but the pettiness and vulgarity of it are hard to endure. Mm. One way of dealing with these terrible, or dare we say, contemptible psalms is simply to leave them alone. Psalm 23, specifically Psalm 23, mm-hmm. 5, so everyone can at least have an idea of what specifically he was referring to. Psalm 23, verse 5, states, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. He described that verse mm-hmm. as petty and vulgar. Mm-hmm. Like I said, that one, that upsets me. Yeah. I don't know how you could say that about that verse. I think right. I think giving as much credit as possible to the mind of C.S. Lewis, he was brilliant. But I think when he says things like this, he seems very he makes himself seem very stupid. Yeah. <laughs> I mean that that's the only way I can put it. Yeah, I'm trying to imagine the the thought process. And of course you have to start from the premise of there may there may be things in scripture that have been put there in error. 
and are not the inspired word of God. Because if you if you don't start from that premise, I don't know how you get to right. calling that verse petty. And but vulgar. yeah, yeah, petty and vulgar. But I guess in his mind, the picture must have been bad sportsman. It's kind of like bad sportsmanship. Like you're a sore winner. Right. Uh, like you just won the state basketball championship and you're celebrating on the other team's home court. Right. Um, that kind of thing, which right. I don't think that. And I mean, basketball was probably not in his mind. Something, <laughs> something like that. So if that's your picture of it, okay, I can see how you would say that. If your premise also is, well, there's there's things in here that probably shouldn't be in here. But again, this is. I think this goes to the doctrine of your doctrine of God, your view oh, yeah. of God. Yeah. In, in the Psalms, which he says, "Leave them alone," mm-hmm. is also the place where we see. Our God sits in the heavens and laughs. Yes. He does whatever he pleases. Yeah. He sees the 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 people uh, who who hate him and he laughs at them. He holds them in derision because he knows that their time is mm-hmm. coming. Right? That's the God that we serve. And I think the Psalms is one of the best. I, I, I would tell anyone oh, that yeah. you should read the Psalms. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. But not, again, not in isolation. I don't believe any of the books of scripture should be read in, in isolation because that's where a lot of false beliefs yeah. come from. Oh, yeah. His doctrine of salvation was also one that was a little bit sketchy. What's What specific examples do you have in mind? Uh, here's one, <laughs> one quote of. from uh, Mere Christianity. Okay. He said, quote, There are people in other religions who are being led by God's secret influence to concentrate on those parts of their religion which are in agreement with Christianity and who thus belong to Christ without knowing it. Mm. End quote. Okay, two things I want to say about this. In this, he says, being led by God's secret influence. I would call that providence. Yeah. God is providentially guiding the steps of man, right? Which Proverbs says. Mm-hmm. Second thing in, I don't know, I want to say it. I'm going to say it. Is it possible? To belong to Christ and not know it? Yes. I think you can be, well, I think you have to be careful how you word that. Yes. Can you be among the elect and not yet Absolutely. Know? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And I, I'm i sure I got that from R.C. Sproul. Right. <laughs> I, I mean, I can't recall the exact moment, but sure. I'm 100% sure I got that from R.C. Sproul, uh, which is a great encouragement. Absolutely. So, yeah, in, in a sense, do do the elect come to Christ? Absolutely, from before the foundation of the Absolutely. world. Absolutely. And it's possible that you are elect and you are being drawn and you do not yet know that that is your state. Sure. You can't remain there. Right. And at, like we said before, there there is a content to the Christian faith that is is not necessary, but is, well, it is necessary. It's not sufficient because, like we said before, right. the, the demons know who Absolutely. Jesus is, and they believe that it is true. Every everything about him uh, that he says about himself is true, but that's not sufficient, although mm-hmm. it is necessary. On that part of it, we can say, okay, we're we can agree with you if this is what you mean. Right. Right. But again, where, it would be great to have a conversation with yeah, them. Like, yeah. Well, when you say that, right? Where where I think how it, do you mean it? Where I think it totally breaks down is where he says they're following the own the tenets of their religion that match up with Christianity. Well, no. (laughs) Sure. But I think, is he echoing what Paul says in Romans? They're a law unto themselves. Mm. And so they prove that the law of God is written on their hearts. Right. 
Right? Yeah, if you wanted to state it that way, if, he, if if in following the tenets of your religion, you are following God's eternal moral law. Yes. Okay. Yes. yes. Yeah. Right. So again, we have to. I mean, I want to assume the best. Yeah. And based on, I'm not. I'm not denying what the way he said the things that he said was severely problematic. Yeah. And it also honestly it reminded me a lot of of Keller mm-hmm. when I was reading some of the things. I was like, why would you say it that way? Yeah. <laughs> why? That that's not helpful. Right. Yeah. 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 Or another person who shall remain nameless, <laughs> who will make statements about certain doctrines and then just say, well, I'm just saying what the Westminster Confession says. Like, well, if you wanted to say what the Westminster Confession yeah. said, why didn't you just say those yes, words? Exactly. You, you didn't need to come up with a new way to say it um, just to be pithy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but again, I think also you consider like, well, if you do not hold to the inerrancy of Scripture, well, then how do you know any of it's true? Yeah. Where do you draw that line? Mm-hmm. Lewis had a couple of places. He said, uh, whatever view we hold of the divine authority of Scripture, we must re- make room for the following facts. One, the distinction which St. Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 7 between not I, but the Lord, and I speak, not the Lord. Two, the apparent inconsistencies between the genealogies in Matt, uh, Matthew and Luke with the accounts of the death of Judas. In Matthew 27, 5 and Acts 1, 18-19. 3. St. Luke's own account of how he obtained the ma- his, this, his matter. Uh, Luke 1, verses 1-4. The universally admitted or number four, the universally admitted unhistoricity. And he says in parentheses, I do not say, of course, falsity of at least some narratives in scriptures, such as the parables, which may well extend also to Jonah and Job. Five, if every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, then open edifying in scripture or not must be in some sense inspired. That's problematic. That's not the. Uh, yeah. I, I, I get what he's trying to in say. In some sense, is doing a lot of anything work that there. is true, is true, mm-hmm. right? Regardless of the mouthpiece, yes. Regardless of where it's coming from, what is true is true, mm-hmm. and I think that's what he's getting at, right? But again, that's a terrible way to say it. Yeah, but yeah, because you can't... <sighs> again. So the moral in a law sense, of it's God trying to do too much work there, right? The moral law of God might be present in Hinduism or Buddhism or paganism in right. some in some respects right. there so, might be some level right. of the moral law of god written there but that doesn't mean that that therefore that religion is true or yeah. has tenets of truth no that religion is false it's right any our view of truth must be entirely exclusive mm-hmm. yep we must deal in absolutes we must be sith lords <laughs> <laughs> All right, continuing on. Six, he says of scriptures, John chapter six, verses 49 through 52. Inspiration may operate in a wicked man without his knowing it, and he can then utter the untruth he intends. Propriety of making an innocent man a political scapegoat, as well as the truth he does not intend, the divine sacrifice. John six forty-nine through 52 says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, 
which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? What's he saying again? Inspiration map in there. Wicked man without his knowing it, and can then utter the untruth he intends. I have no idea what he's talking about there. Yeah. <laughs> I guess he's speaking about the Pharisees. Yeah. Possibly. Must be. Well, These... they say, yeah, how can you give us your flesh to eat? And then yeah. he, can't, he continues to answer them. Yeah. Like, here's how. Yeah. You want to know? Listen up. So C.S. Lewis says of these six quote-unquote facts, I would say elementary observations. Yeah. <laughs> Lewis said, quote, rule out the view that any one passage taken in isolation can be assumed to be inerrant in exactly the same sense as any other. Example given that the numbers of Old Testament armies are statistically correct because the story of the resurrection is historically correct. That is not, end quote. Like that, <laughs> that is not, that's not good. That's, that's illogical. Yeah. That's not a good syllogism. Mm, that syllogism mm -hmm. is broken. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So those are his thoughts on, those are two of his, two of his things. But the next one is very, very long as well. Do you have the last battle in there? I don't. Okay. Well, we'll get to that. Yeah, I think, well, well I think here, that's kind of, it's kind of in that one. So you can read oh, that Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, let me, yeah. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Just a moment. Because you're doing, I mean, we're leaving out some of his, uh, well, just a little more biographical information. We'll come back to that because it's relevant here. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the last things that he, he wrote, too. Yep. We talked about the lectures that became near Christianity in 1942. So during the war is also when he publishes the Screwtape Letters. Mm. I think that one's all fairly well known as well. Yeah, that one is also very well known. So those those two, probably along with the Chronicles of Narnia, are the, the best known. Mm -hmm. Chronicles of Narnia came later, so... I want to double check my dates here, but I'm, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Lion, the Witch, the Wardrobe was published in 1950, and The Last Battle, which is the seventh book, and uh, the last chronologically in within the series, is um, 1956. Hmm. It was also 1956 when Lewis got married. Finally. At the age you know, of 57 years old. He, hmm. In April of eight, nine, 1956, he married... Uh, Joy David Lynn Gresham, who was an American writer, former con communist, like himself, a convert from atheism to Christianity. Did she stop um, being a communist? I think so. Um, oh, you said former communist. Yeah, I guess former so, communist, yeah. yes. Um, so they kept up a correspondence for a while. Um, she comes to the UK with her, her two sons. And uh, part of the reason that, uh, now, of course, they, they had this longstanding friendship. But part of the reason that he, they got married was so she could stay in the country illegally. <laughs> this is a funny little little detail. But they didn't. I Way mean, to stick it to the state. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they were married first in a, a civil ceremony, um, which was kind of like to get the paperwork done, and then they were later had a, a, a religious ceremony in the in the Church of England. Hmm. Um, so they were uh, they were married. Now at the time, she was also she was also very sick with cancer, um, so she was basically dying. Yeah. And they believed like, well, I'll get married. It'll, you know, number one, it's, it's for our companionship. It also lets you stay in the country. So you don't have to go back across the Atlantic ocean, which at the time was, you know, that was a difficult journey, especially for someone who had terminal bone cancer Yikes. Um, yeah. and, and two sons. Um, so she's allowed, you know, she can stay in the country and um, whether it was miraculous or not, I don't know, but her cancer goes into remission. Hmm. Um, for a while, so they had they had several good years there. 
but eventually the cancer does come back um, and she dies in, in July of 1916. So that was his one marriage. He continued to raise her sons after her, after her death. And then, of course, Lewis himself had you know, various health problems, kidney failure by the end. And he died at 5.30 p.m. on November 22nd, 1963, exactly one week before his 65th birthday. Mm. And he's buried there in Oxford. His brother, Warren, uh, died 10 years later. And they're buried there together in the, uh, in the church, in one of the churches in uh, Headington, Oxford. That's kind of, and there are some works that were uh, published after his death. We didn't really see much. I mean, we mentioned the Inklings, but didn't dive into right. too, too much. Um, and then, yeah, so for anybody who grew up reading and grew up reading Christian books, you're, you're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been extremely popular for, you know, 70 years now and made into TV series and movies mm-hmm. on multiple occasions. Although the best one is the BBC production from the 1980s. Sorry, guys. Uh, you can keep your CGI Liam Neeson line. I will take my animatronic uh, unknown voice actor. <laughs> oh, boy. Every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Hmm. Anyway, that's just an aside. But so I kind of mentioned earlier the last battle, which is the last book. And, you know, cover your ears or turn off if you don't want spoilers it's not a it's not a huge spoiler. if you haven't read it then i mean it's been out there's no yeah it's been no out for uh 60 longer years. than i've been alive yeah, so yeah longer. you are you don't get spoiled <laughs> there you don't get a spoiler alert running yes. for that or send your kids into the other room if they're yeah. listening you don't want a spoiler for them obviously there's this confrontation between good and evil in narnia but it highlights again one of these questionable may, may not questionable just flat out wrong, wrong. um and it kind of feeds into what we've talked about a little bit already. Yeah, so slightly. Yeah. yeah, which is the idea and it's adjacent to if not just straight universalism. I think uh, I saw someone distinguish it as inclusivism. Inclusivism. Yeah, that which might is, be a better different word. different from universalism. Yeah, not that not that everyone not that it's will much be better, saved. but yeah. Yeah. Um but there will be yeah, and I don't want to I don't want to make too broad a statement and mischaracterize when right. it comes down. But you do see some of the characters in that book who are who do get to go to Aslan's country, which mm-hmm. is kind of the uh, the uh, parallel for heaven, who were not up to that point um, faithful followers and subjects of Aslan in the book. Who C.S. Lewis himself was he was kind of fuzzy on this too, where people would ask him, "Well, like, is Aslan supposed? Is he?" an allegorical is he an allegory for jesus yeah or is he something else right and officially i think he said in a couple letters like no he's not aslan is not an allegory for jesus however when children read these books and they express love for aslan i want that to grow their love for christ which is a good goal maybe it was not I don't know. I love the books and I love the movies. Maybe it wasn't the best way to go about it. And maybe he blurred the lines there a little bit too much because especially with young children, mm-hmm. um, you run the danger of them confusing the two things. Yeah, because they are very impressionable. And, you know, like I tell my kids all the time about why we restrict what they can watch or mm-hmm. listen to is because once it's in there, it's very difficult to get out. Oh, yeah. It's impossible. You can't get it out. Yeah. So now you have to try to correct it if there's right. any false 
yeah. hood to it. Yeah. So, and there are ways, and this is the thing, and Lewis himself would say, there are ways in which Aslan and Jesus are very different. And in the Narnia books, you you get Aslan and you get the king, the king across the sea. I can't remember the, the term. It's Aslan's father, who's mentioned briefly, but doesn't really play a part in the books. Right. But you don't really have any kind of parallel for the Holy Spirit. Or the Trinity, yeah. There's no Trinity. Right, so there's no Trinity. So that's a major difference. Yeah. And that's probably one of the reasons he would say, look, I'm not saying that Aslan yeah. is Jesus. Like, there right. is no Trinity in Narnia. But it is supposed to, it is supposed to point your, your hearts and your minds toward the true. Toward a true good. Yes. Something, yes. That which is true and beautiful. and The, the true myth, as yes. Tolkien would have said it. Who's so, Catholic? Yes. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's Again, a, that's, that's another separate episode. We're, we're not... <laughs> Lewis is not a theologian, all right? I would I would be hesitant, hesitant to say he was a good apologist mm-hmm. because I'm going to use a, use a name here who's someone who's, I, I don't know, um, has been disgraced, uh, and that's Ravi Zacharias. Mm-hmm. He was great at on-the-spot correction for false ways of thinking. And I think in a similar way, Lewis had a good way of, or was very good at, uh, I just wouldn't call him a very good apologist. Mm. And the same thing about Ravi Zacharias, even yeah. though that was his, that was his thing, right? right? He yeah. was a, he never really talked about scripture that much. Mm-hmm. And, um, they were both, I think, you can certainly call them both effective popularizers. Sure. So when you think about one of the most famous portions of mere Christianity is where Lewis sets out the trilemma mm. about Jesus. So like either right. he right. was a crazy person because he went around saying he was God or he knew what he was doing and he was just lying to people or your other, only other option is everything we said, everything, every single thing he said was true. And he is the Lord of the universe. Yeah. But there's no other options. Like right. there's not, oh, well, he was a good teacher and he was just good. No, that's. Yeah. It's impossible for him to be a good teacher. Right. While he was doing all these now, horrible things. Lewis didn't come up with that argument. Right. But like his version of it is the one that, and you know, he was the one that introduced a lot of people in the 20th century to that. Absolutely. And of course, putting it out on the BBC during the war when everybody's listening, like yeah. a lot of people are going to hear that. That's going to yeah. have a tremendous uh, societal uh, effect. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think you're, I agree with you. Like when you, when you go, try to go a little bit deeper, it's like, Oh, some of this stuff breaks. There down. are better apologists yeah. and there are better theologians that you could study. Yeah. If someone is looking for deep theo- theological understanding of who God is, of Christ, of his covenant, of, a systematic approach to looking at theology from from scripture alone. I don't think I would ever send anyone to go to Lewis. Mm-hmm. He said, "I I don't think." Oh, let's read this final. Sure. Yeah. This yeah. final thing before we let's do that. Conclude. It's another long one, so apologies. He says, "Quote: Humanity is already saved in principle." We individuals have to appropriate that salvation. But the really tough work, the bit we could not have done for ourselves, has been done for us. We have not got to try to climb up into spiritual life by our own efforts. It has already come down into the human race. If we will only lay ourselves upon 
lay ourselves open to the one man in whom it is fully present, and who, in spite of being God, is also a real man. He will do it in us and for us. Remember what I said about good infection. One of our own race has this new life. If we get close to him, we shall catch it from him. Of course, you can express this in all sorts of different ways. You can say that Christ died for our sins. You may say that the Father has forgiven us because Christ has done for us what we ought to have done. You may say that we are washed in the blood of the Lamb. You may say that Christ has defeated death. They are all true. If any of them do not appeal to you, leave it alone and get on with the formula that does. And whatever you do, do not start quarreling with other people because they use a different formula from yours. Mere Christianity, page 156 to 157. So, what, what part of there? Uh, yeah, well, near the beginning where he says, uh, we don't have to do the really hard part. Right. Implies that very heavily and probably intentionally, but there is something that you have, you have right. to do. Right. Um, so I'm, it's, um, you know, semi-Pelagian. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, which to, to get there, you have to admit, well, there, there is something still, there's something good in, in people still. It's very small. It's not much. takes, you know, it's 99.9% Jesus, yeah. but then 0.1%, like that's, you, you have to do that. It. Yeah, you have to appropriate it. And that's, um, obviously, we would disagree with that, well, there, but there's a lot of Christians who would yeah. not disagree with that. Right. It's uh, problematic. But again, I think this is a matter of soteriology. Yeah. And again, for theology, I'm not going to send anybody to Lewis. Right. I mean, I think he does... I mean, the things that he said are true, are true. Yeah. Jesus is, uh, has come down into the human race, who is God. He is truly God, truly man. And he does it in us and for us. Yeah. 100% agree with that. The good infection analogy, I don't That's know. a little strange, but I want to see a little more context on that I th- one. I think, you know, I think what he's trying to say is you must lay hold of Christ. Right. Yes. And if, if that was all he was trying to say in a very... I don't know, bloated way. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I would say, yes, amen. Yeah. We must lay hold of Christ. Right. And then if you want to talk about how that happens, mm-hmm. the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of regeneration, calling, the gospel, what it is, like that's a different conversation. Yeah. That's the, that's a matter of gospel presentation. Mm-hmm. And I would, I, 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 it really bothers me that he doesn't have any clear articulation Mm. of the gospel in any of his writings right yeah that is problematic yeah probably the thing that bothers me the most yeah but what must we go on yeah what must we believe he affirmed the creeds Mm -hmm. he was a to use a phrase that we both hate an anglican in good standing (laughs) not the anglican part the good standing part (laughs) but he held to he he claimed christ yeah and so, in that case, I think he is not a heretic, no, not but he's definitely not a theologian. Right, no. And I don't know that I would say he's a hero. Mm. I would say he's a wonderful author. Oh, yeah. And maybe champion. Maybe I'm a champion hero, kind of the same. Yeah. I don't know if I'd want to throw hero out there, though. He's up there. He's up there. He's like a hero's sidekick. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but... He's like one of the... Uh... 
one he's, of the uh, he's like tier. Anakin. He has a seat <laughs> on the council, but he's not a voting member. That's what it is. Oh my goodness! That's all I can think of. I mean, <sighs> yeah. Well, I mean, if you think of if I mean, I hate the superhero analogy. So, but I'm trying yeah. to think of a better one. I can't really at this point. <laughs> It's like, uh, and I'm no huge fan of the Marvel movies, but you know, it's like the top tier heroes. Oh, yeah. Like Iron Man, Captain America. He's like the guy with the bow. Right, right. He has certain certain things that he's really good at. Sure. And C.S. Lewis absolutely does. But when you get in the mind, calling up Iron Man, you're calling up Captain America because they can do it all. Yeah. But... Now, that's the other thing. It's like, there's nobody, I mean, there's very few people that can do it all. Absolutely. Because a lot of your very good systematic theologians. Especially since, you know, 2000, what was it? December 14th of, you know, a few years ago. 27? Has it been 2017? I think so. Yeah, that's, man. But yeah, to find a guy who. That guy's a hero. Yes. Who will do, uh, you know, uh, can do systematic theology and apologetics and write fiction. Yeah. Um, I don't know that that person exists. Yeah. Well, I mean, he wrote some really great short oh, stories for kids. That's true. Dr. Spohl did. He's got the those children's books, and they're and they're excellent. Yeah, I'd say he's my hero. Yeah, for sure. So I say all that to say, like most people, they're going to be good at at, dis- at discrete things, and, sure. and you can't be you can't be phenomenal at everything. So we're not certainly not trying to put him down. Right. No, not at uh, all. In any way. Um, no, he was he he did. Uh, I think were he alive, I think he and I, I think we would all be able to have a conversation with him yeah. and and count ourselves as brothers. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, absolutely. and be grateful for that. Yeah. Anything else? I think that's all. All right. Yeah. I hope this has satisfied our request uh, from one of our listeners to discuss C.S. Lewis. I know he's a beloved by many, mm-hmm. and again, for some, there are some really harsh critics out there of him. Some. The one that I said was the harshest critic, he said no, he wasn't because he did not express salvation by faith alone. Mm. Like he said, wow. nope. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, we're still going to get some hate mail, though. Oh, I'm sure. This is, this is going to sure. be the one that gets us some hate mail. Yeah. I have a feeling. <laughs> Maybe. But I, I, I can't. I, I'm, here's where I am. I, I can't say hero and I can't say heretic. But I think we can say he was a brother. Yes, absolutely. That's and, good. Yeah. Well put. All right. Until next time. Thanks for stopping by.